Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain related innovation. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. The fact of the matter is that there will always be an important role, in my view, for trusted intermediaries and institutions in human society. I don't think you can eliminate them entirely. But there are so many areas where we can adopt an entirely different approach and eliminate that need to blindly trust the bank down the street or the county recorder's office downtown for certainty and for clarity. And if you think about, Jacob, all of the resources we pour into these institutions to maintain and validate that that trust and confidence that are wasted, that, that, that could be deployed towards all sorts of other pressing needs in our community and our society, it's imperative, I think, for us to at least keep an open mind to where these technologies can be more efficient and more effective. And so that's really the spirit that I think a lot of us in crypto try to keep and really bring to this conversation. And my hope is that as we continue to talk with and engage with others that are perhaps less optimistic and even more antagonistic, we're going to start to turn their minds and turn their hearts on this. I really believe that. That was Paul Gruel the chief legal officer of Coinbase, and I thought his quote was apt to begin this podcast, which is episode 100 of Law of Code, and thank you everyone for listening, for supporting. It's meant the world to me to be able to share the legal side of crypto, to learn from the experts at the front lines who are really doing important work to move this space forward and to be a participant myself The goal with this podcast was to move forward the legal side of crypto, to act as a sounding board for the regulators, for lawyers, for entrepreneurs in the space, to have important conversations and to share their thinking on these areas. In this episode, rather than a typical interview, I wanted to share the most enlightening answers I've received when asking the question, why crypto? What keeps you in this space? Why do you believe in this technology? And I thought this would be a good way to really celebrate the industry that I'm so thankful to be a part of and celebrate the people who have been so generous with countless hours of their time to make this podcast possible. For everyone listening, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for joining me for these 100 episodes. It really has been an honor and a privilege to be able to have these conversations. And one amazing initiative that partly inspired this podcast is the value prop that was launched by Rebecca Rettig and the team at Polygon. Their goal was to answer the question of what problems do blockchain solve? And many people have said blockchains are a solution in search of a problem, but I thought the value prop does a great job of explaining that's not necessarily the case. It highlights 39 separate use cases for blockchain technology with over 300 different applications under those use cases. And I think we're just scratching the surface of the technology's potential. To give you an idea of some of the use cases that are included in Polygon's value prop. 
data analytics, crowdfunding, carbon credits, emergency aid, insurance, investing, loyalty and rewards, portable memberships, programmatic advertising, proof of humanity and personhood, royalties, traceability, universal basic income, verifiable credentials, regulatory compliance, money transfers, KYC, investing, GPS mapping, developer tools, the list goes on and on and on. One of these examples is Lens Protocol, a Web3 social graph designed to empower creators to own the links between themselves and their community. I'll let Rebecca explain Lens from a previous episode we did. So Lens is a protocol, a set of smart contracts. They are deployed on the Polygon blockchain because it's very quick, very cheap and efficient and eco-friendly. And Lens allows you to create your own social media profile. You own your own content, you own your own data, you never turn any of it over into a centralized intermediary. And it also allows you to take all that content and data and plug it into any front end that you want to. And there have been a number of third parties who have created front ends already for, for things like, that it looks like Twitter. So Lenster, things that look like YouTube, things that look like music sharing, all of that is being created. And you will get to then curate all your own data. The other amazing part of Lens is not just that you will let, get to keep your own data and your own content, but you can use your content as you want to. And so one of the cool things that we've seen is that Lens enables people to allow for collects of their content. So if you posted a picture of your new dog and I thought your dog was really cute, I could collect the picture of your new dog by sending you some Matic via Polygon. And so it's also a way, it's really sort of the creator economy on steroids, if you think about it, because it will, it's not just, oh, here's my NFT and I'm selling all these NFTs and then you've run out. It's really your thoughts for the day or the month and people being able to collect those. So it's a way to enable people to participate in the economy in a new way too. I think Lens is the way forward. It is decentralized um, in a way that other Web3 social, even if they use the moniker decentralized, is not yet. And it's really user-owned and controlled. So it takes Sani's vision of having verticals across this user-owned internet, right? That's what Web3 is. And we have Gave Protocol that we created, DeFi, uh, now Web3 Social through Lens. And there's lots more from Stani's creative vision that will come out that really makes this user-owned internet into a reality. And that was one example of the promise we're seeing with Web3, with the digital asset space, this movement to a decentralized user-owned internet. Jason Gottlieb from Morrison Cohen does an excellent job explaining the importance of these digital assets as more and more of our lives begin to move online. Increasingly, our lives are surrounded by digital assets, right? Our communications are a stream of digital encodings. Our public personas are digital with all of your online profiles. Our entertainment is digital. Our money is digital. Even the, the base physical elements of our lives, like your clothes, your food, the, the house over your, over your roof, you know, you order, you order food on Seamless through a system of digital encodings. You, you buy your clothes at, at you know, gap.com or, or you do if you're more fashionable than I am. I, I, get, I get them at lowrentclothes.com. I don't know. Everything is becoming digitized and everything is represented by digital assets. Um, that's separate from crypto, that's broader than blockchain. There's a, a fundamental change that is happening with the, the digitization of everything in our lives. Crypto is kind of the most immediately obvious application of it. I mean, frankly, as soon as you can 
uh, as soon as there's some new invention, somebody's going to figure out how to financialize. And that's that. That's what happened first here, and that's fine. It's just that's just what happens. But the fact that you can build things and you can build infinite things to me is what's fascinating and what keeps me in this space. So it's not just a question of the essential, the bricolage of the financial markets, right? You take one financial instrument and software makes it easy to combine those financial instruments. And we see that happening all the time. And what is a, a DEX that allows perps trading other than, you know, little bricks of different financial instruments put together in a certain way? You're soon going to see these bricks combined across digital asset classes, right? Across communications and your persona and your entertainment and your money, all of this can be combined in fascinating ways. And software makes it all easy and very cost efficient to start up. Think about the, the power of this, right? If you wanted to fork a, a DEX, you could. You could just start your own DEX and, and most of the code is open source. So you could just go ahead and do it. I mean, think about what kind of power that is. Like what if if today I could say, you know something, HSBC is cool. It's a good bank and all, but I'm just going to launch HSBD and I'm going to have all the same stuff, but I'm going to have a few extra features that I want. If you have the power to do that, then you, you truly have immense amounts of power to recreate and reshape the society. Now that power is not necessarily all a good thing, right? If I could snap my fingers and and recreate an entire global international bank and then pretend like, okay, uh, you know, I have the banking, but I don't have any of the licenses or registration or compliance personnel, and I'm just going to go off and do some banking stuff. I mean, you know, again, you go back to 400 years of corporate governance to figure out like, maybe that's not such a great idea. So we need to combine this amazing ability to create new things with all of these bricks that we have with new ways of thinking about how to regulate and how to have legal frameworks around them. But it all started with Bitcoin. And Laura Shin in an earlier episode shared why she noticed and saw an opportunity with this technology as applied in the banking context. It was very clear that Bitcoin was very significant and was going to change everything. And I recognized that pretty much immediately because I was at that time learning about all the problems in the banking system. So, you know, when you kind of understood like, oh, the the banking system runs on rails that are decades old and now there's this new technology and it's like completely different and way faster and way cheaper. It was just like, this is a no brainer. Did someone say banking system? I don't think there's many people more qualified to speak on that than Caitlin Long, the CEO of Custodia Bank. Here, Caitlin gives some insight into how blockchain can work to improve the banking system. In the ACH, the Automated Clearinghouse Payment System, which is the most dominant payment system by quantity of payments in the U.S., there are two banks that dominate it. Wells Fargo and JP Morgan have nearly a 50% market share. And that's because every, every small bank, ultimately, not everyone, but a, a majority of small banks roll up and, and use them as an intermediary in, that, in those layers of nettings, right? Uh, and there was a very interesting comment letter that was given to the Fed where Wise, formerly TransferWise, analyzed 
what's the markup that JP Morgan and Wells Fargo charge to those small banks, which is ultimately passed to you? It's 100 times. Okay, if you can cut through all those intermediaries, then you can settle fast, okay? And it's so it's not just the extra cost of the intermediaries, it's the speed of settlement with not having to go through those intermediaries. Why? Because those intermediaries have to settle in sequence. So you can't settle simultaneously. The only way you can settle something simultaneously, and frankly, it's not even really possible with a blockchain, is if you share infrastructure. The, the power of blockchain from an infrastructure perspective is that it is shared. It's a shared ledger system. Each one doesn't need to keep their own copy of the ledger and then reconcile. There's a tremendous amount of duplication and reconciliation of information that happens because we have these layers of intermediaries. And by the way, for those who like to argue against Bitcoin as because of the environmental issues, stop and think about the fact that you've got multiple financial institutions duplicating and then reconciling the very same information, whether it's a payment or whether it's a stock transaction, because of those layers of intermediaries that we still have due to the analog nature of the structure of financial markets, uh, that is not green at all. And this disintermediating has real effects on real people. John Deaton, who many know from the XRP litigation, spoke about the impact that a settlement system like crypto offers can have. I come from poverty, a single mother, six children, living on welfare and food stamps in Detroit. And I know my mother didn't get her first checking account until she's in her 40s. Right. And when you're on welfare and food stamps, you don't have the ability to go to the bank, get a banking account. It's, it's almost like a foreign concept to people, not just around the world, but here still in the United States. And so the, the concept of those people that are unbanked and the poor and, and this means of payment. I remember using the Western unions of the world where they take 10 percent. Right. If you're sending $100, your mom gets 90 at best. And that makes a lot of difference to people. And so that's what really sparked my interest, to be honest with you. This has a real impact on people across the world. And Tom Lombardi speaks on self-sovereign money and the value that this portability brings. Right now, it is really just for the individual and not just the individual you and I sitting here. But also, we think about refugees crossing borders and, and protection of wealth that's not depreciated by 100% per year. That's where it matters the most. And people are solving for that, right? So in order to the magnitude around self-sovereign money as a basic primitive internet-based money that I have no doubt will take control of the system, the next magnitude is around is just like individual freedom, portability, my ability as an individual to express an opinion about an investment, be it a dog coin, be it a monkey picture, or be it a position on coffee futures in Ethiopia. Like I should have one click access to all of those. I mean, it's everything is moving to the direction that we're heading, right? Crypto. Crypto is where it's at. This is the next fight for freedom. Financial, which usually means freedom of, from government to me and, and, and freedom from large rent-seeking traditional institutions. And I think this technology offers a promise to cut out the middleman. Crypto does offer an opportunity to cut out the middleman in certain circumstances, 
But what about regulators? I asked Commissioner Hester Peirce whether this technology can be built in a way that a regulator might be able to utilize the technology rather than try to stamp it out in its infancy. And I thought her answer was fantastic. Can we displace the regulator entirely and and just rely on transparency on-chain? And I think it is important for regulators as they're thinking about what are the objectives we're trying to achieve. And for the SEC, typically we think about our objectives in three buckets, which is investor protection, facilitating capital formation, and then protecting the integrity of the marketplace. So as regulators are thinking about those objectives, they should also be thinking about what are the tools out there to achieve those objectives. And and do regulators even need to be the ones that are exercising those tools or can the will the market just naturally exercise those tools? So I'm open to the idea that that code transparency can do more of the work than the regulator's role. I think regulators will still have a role to play. There will be frauds. There, there, you know, there may be uh, things that are not on chain, which for, for some people is hard to believe, but right. And so there are lots of people who are not going to be sitting there reading code and they're going to need plain English disclosures. And so I, I, I don't think that there's, there's no room for a securities regulator. I do think that there's room for the securities regulator relying more on the technology to do things. I mean, again, one of the reasons people are drawn to this technology is that it provides everyone access on equal terms, which is really attractive when you compare it to a financial system that too often has not given people access on on equal terms. And so there are a lot of things about the technology that we can employ for achieving regulatory objectives, but I think there's probably always going to be a role for the regulator, especially because I don't think we're going to eliminate centralized intermediaries altogether. I think there are likely to be some people who want to interact directly with the code and they don't want to go through any other institution. There are others that are going to want to rely on an institution that they're going to be able to call when they have problems. And likely that institution is going to be subject to regulation by either the SEC or some other regulator in Washington. All very, very valid points. And Gregory Exthalis joined me for an amazing conversation, and he explained it very concisely and very, very well, discussing the shifting world we're seeing and the programmatic powers that exist within this system. In digital assets, you are shifting from a world where you're looking at contractual rights against a party versus programmatic powers within a system. And that distinction is is robust. And it's one of the reasons why we don't need centralized intermediaries. Now, you could step back and say, oh, you still have centralized parties. You have validators or minor mining pools who are processing transactions and making sure everything goes. Or you have labs, companies that are helping drive software development, hopefully in a decentralized way. But you can say all those things. But when you actually look at not all, but So the core financial or commercial primitives that are being built on blockchain-based networks, we're talking about systems that don't look like what occurs in the corporeal world. The ethereal world is programmatic, and I'm not a code-is-law person, but I do love the law of code, but not a code-is-law person from a legal perspective, but it is code-is-power. So in some cases, what 
worked previously is not going to work here. It's one of the reasons why, you know, one of the things that I think a lot about is the need to take a deliberate step when we're thinking about regulating or developing policy or legislation around DeFi. And at the same time, there's an important opportunity to capture legislative action, regulatory action around that which we do know how to address now, which is large centralized parties. And when we speak on regulatory capture and regulatory action, legislative action, lawyers in the crypto space will play an enormous role. And whether or not you think crypto lawyers exist, Marco Santori had a great answer for why he says they do. I do think crypto lawyers exist. That is a thing. That is a category. And a crypto native lawyer is someone who got into crypto and looks around and the rest of the world is in black and white. And crypto is the only thing in color. I do think those kinds of lawyers exist. I'll say that if all goes right, those kinds of lawyers will cease to exist, just like there's no such thing as an internet lawyer anymore. Back when you know, you're probably still in elementary school or middle school, there was such a thing as an internet lawyer. That, that wasn't a joke. That was a real thing. And, peop- and, and their expertise was highly sought after. It was highly sought after by people who wanted to learn more about how they could do business on the internet, right? Those don't exist anymore. Most of them became privacy lawyers, interestingly enough, but that category doesn't exist. And the reason it doesn't exist is because the internet touches everything that we do today. And so it would be silly to call yourself an internet lawyer today. If all goes well, the same thing will happen to crypto. Crypto lawyers will cease to exist because crypto touches almost everything that we do in commerce soon. And so we've heard quite a few answers touching on the transferability, the commercial aspects of crypto, but what Rodrigo Sierra of Paradigm does an excellent job of explaining is the incentivization and collective action that we see built out in the digital asset space. The root thing that has attracted me to blockchain is seeing it as a framework for incentivizing human collaboration and kind of collective action. And I think it started with a exploration of open source software. And then the question in my mind, like to try to explain the mentality of developers that were contributing to, to these projects, right? Why would somebody that's super skilled and could charge a lot for their time contribute to something publicly? And then you realize that open source software is the backbone of a lot of the infrastructure that we use today. So I, that was always a curiosity in my mind. And then what I see crypto as doing is basically supercharging that potential dynamic by giving contributors economic upside to the development of these kind of networks and doing so in a transparent and immutable way. So I think as like the root use case, that is it for me, incentivizing human coordination. And those humans that are coordinating consist of devs. And I spoke with Jesse Pollock, an engineer at Coinbase, who explained what he's seen today and why we are close to that future that we all think is possible. When I look at the, the stuff that's happening on Ethereum today with um, login with Ethereum, with Connect Your Wallet, with the, the work that Spruce ID is doing, it's like it, it, we're, we're so close. We're close to that future now where you really are going to be able to have your identity that's yours 
and then websites are going to recognize it and you're going to sign something and you're going to log in and you're not going to have to do passwords. I think, I think we're probably like two to four years away from not going totally mainstream and um, it's going to be a lot better, a lot better world. There's a lot to look forward to and many people analogize the period in crypto to many things, including the internet and including the Renaissance. And I'll let Peter Van Valkenburg explain the internet and Marissa Koppel will follow with the Renaissance. Mark Andreessen wrote a pretty good blog post, gosh, probably like five years ago, saying that crypto today is like the internet in 97. And I think the only thing that Mark Andreessen got wrong in that post was was a little optimistic. It was probably more like the internet in 87 and had a lot of growing up to do before it would end up being the platform for Netflix and and YouTube and all of the things that we enjoy today. I still believe that's the right uh, analogy because it's this open platform for innovation. You know, you don't need permission in order to write a smart contract or to create an asset like Bitcoin. You can just do it and build it and it'll be a peer-to-peer network. If people like it, they'll join. If they don't, then your idea maybe wasn't so great. And so that permissionless innovation is, I think, essential to to America, to to global prosperity, really. I, I wouldn't want to live in a country where you have to go to some council of elders to convince them that people would be better off with these new technological tools. It would be bad for everyone. And it's also important for civil liberties, which is you know the, the other half of the reason I got into this. I didn't just like the internet. I liked the fact that the internet was an incredible tool for people who'd never had a voice before to have a voice and a voice that couldn't even be censored and a voice that might actually be private between two or, or more people in a group if it was encrypted. And so you have a lot of the same qualities with Bitcoin and Ethereum and the newer tech out there. It's censorship resistant. So if I want to make a payment to support a, a pro-democracy advocate in Western China who's fighting against the internment of the Uyghurs, I can make that payment. And even the Chinese government with all their power would have a lot of trouble stopping that payment. And that matters a lot to me from a civil liberties standpoint. Uh, we can see just recently with the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, you know, the Ukrainian government, the Ministry of Finance puts up an, a Bitcoin address and an Ethereum address. And once everybody realizes or becomes comfortable with the fact that this is not a scam, because that's your first impulse is like, all right, who's pretending to be Ukraine? We're not going to donate to you. And then they're like, no, this is actually Ukraine. And then they raise more money than they got from the UN in, in aid and support to buy medical supplies and essential equipment to resist what was a horrible invasion of their country. I don't know why people are on the fence about this sometimes, unless they really like central control. I guess maybe maybe you can't negotiate with those people, but it just seems like it's good for humanity. And I'm willing to accept all kinds of ugliness, like the casino aspect of it, at least in the short term, in order to make sure that we have our freedoms in the long run. I love looking back at the history. You know, there was a one podcast I listened to where it compared what's happening now to the Renaissance and the double entry accounting system that was created, I think right before the Renaissance, but it basically allowed class mobility. And that's something that like I didn't think about before, but now we're getting into users having ownership over their data. And that's like a completely new paradigm. Here's Gabe Shapiro on that new paradigm and the clash that's built into it. So there's no doubt in my mind that we as humans need this type of flexibility in society. Yes, the government doesn't need it. And there is kind of the idea of a clash built into that, but it's something that ultimately as part of an open society, everyone 
even people in the government should recognize has some legitimacy to it. And legitimacy comes in a number of forms. Michael Selig gives a good example here. I think the Ethereum white paper kind of opened that up for me and really got me to see a world where we might have derivative contracts that operate on a blockchain or decentralized organizations that operate on a blockchain, various types of event contracts, securities that could trade on blockchains. So I, I saw it more as like a, a, a software system for building financial markets and products. And following the collapse of FTX, many in the industry, and especially those outside of the industry, were disillusioned with what it offers. Bill Hughes, in a paper he wrote and in our conversation, explains what crypto truly stands for and why FTX and the collapse of centralized exchanges do not define it. When I think of crypto, I think the heart of it is a peer-to-peer computer network where nobody's in charge, anybody can participate, and you can make on it what you want. And so obviously I'm primarily talking about the programmable space where it is, it's just white space. You can write a computer program that as long as it plays by the rules of the network itself can pretty much do anything you want. And anybody will be able to access it if they pay their way. And sometimes that software intermediates between two different people using two different addresses. Sometimes the software itself, a lot of the time, the software itself is the counterparty. Like you're using the code to execute a transaction. There's really not explicitly anybody on the other side. It's this peer-to-peer space, which has nothing to do with what happened with FTX. And you can already see people on Twitter and in other spaces highlight the important distinction between the investment space around crypto and then the actual technology space, which is trying to create these new networks and make them more usable, more accessible, cheaper, faster, et cetera. There really is an enormous opportunity for this technology to solve many of the issues plaguing society, whether it's regarding intermediaries, access to financial systems, and much more. There are so many incredible builders in the space, as well as those on the legal side who are doing important work to bring this novel and nascent technology into the future. Thank you, everyone, for 100 episodes Looking forward to what's to come. As always, this is your host, Jacob Robinson. Thank you, everybody, for joining me.